Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. It is Jennifer Shahadi, and today we have a very special guest with us. He's a high-stakes online legend, a three-time WSOP bracelet winner, the founder of Upswing Poker, host of the groundbreaking Poker Hands. It is Doug Falk. And today he's going to talk about a hand from the high-stakes heads-up challenge in which he defeated Daniel Negrano to win well over a million dollars. Doug, thank you so much for joining me to talk about a super fun hand from the match, Queen 8 Offsuit. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, I appreciate getting the chance to talk about this hand. I think it is uh, one of the coolest hands from the challenge. It's also one of the biggest hands from the challenge in terms of just pot size. So I think that that made it a pretty good candidate. Also, you don't get too many probably opportunities to uh, talk about hands like Queen 8 Offsuit. So this is probably a good opportunity for you as well to fill out the grid. Absolutely. Well, I mean, we have to do each hand. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a good one to do for sure. And such a big pot. Tell us about when in the match this hand took place and what your state was at that point. I think this is somewhere around the halfway point. I want to say maybe a little bit afterwards. The thing about the way that this match played, there wasn't a lot of consideration on stacks. There wasn't a lot of consideration in terms of being worried about getting stacked or not uh, in the earlier part of the challenge because you're really just trying to maximize your win rate for most of it. And then as you get closer to the end, you're going to have to consider, you know, am I okay? playing 400 big blind pots like we played in this one. Or actually, this is the biggest part of the challenge, I think. This is the number one largest hand. You know, you have to think about, am I okay playing for a huge pot here late in the challenge when there's side bets and a lot of things to consider? This is more in the middle where we're just trying to play optimal poker. We're just trying to play uh, our best game to win the most dollars. And uh, so that's kind of the mindset going into it. And what was the score at this point? I, I would assume I was up somewhere in the vicinity of uh, six, seven hundred K. Uh, it swings so much in a session, right? I don't know if it was eight hundred or five hundred, but I would say we have a healthy lead at this point. So we're not in any any type of dire situation if we do end up losing a big pot. Before I picked this hand, it, it didn't quite compute to me that it was a two hundred big line raised heads up hand and that it was going to break my solver because I don't, <laughs> I couldn't run it at all. The game tree was too big for it. Yes, exactly. I need I needed a stronger computer. That was the message, but. Tell us a little bit about um, the preflop action and what your frequencies were. So preflop in this hand is quite standard. Daniel opens the button with 10-8 suited. This is a hand he's always going to be opening. You know, there's optimal preflop would include a, a series of limps. As we learned, if you watch the challenge, we had a bit of a issue over that su very subject. But the way Daniel's playing the button, he's opening all of his continue range. And of course, 10-8 suited is always going to be in there. So very standard from him. And then to me, the big blind with queen-8 offsuit. Queen eight is a hand that's going to be right in the cusp between wanting to mix in some three betting or just pure calling. 
you're going to have to play this hand no matter what. Uh, facing a 2.5 open is a pure continue. Basically, any stack depth you're going to play. Uh, so you're going to have to play this hand. Typically speaking, it's better to three bet with hands that have a nine over an eight. So for example, queen nine is going to be a uh, low frequency three bet, but queen eight might be zero or very, very low frequency. And the logic is that when you have an eight, you actually block a lot of raised folds. Whereas when you have a nine, you block more of the continues. There's a, there's a big difference in terms of the imposition continue range when you have an eight, nine or 10. Basically, when you have an eight, the uh, prevalent fold equity decreases, and obviously post-swap, your playability is not going to be quite as good either. It's a bit more gapped. So this is a hand where we're going to be pretty much pure calling facing an open, and we decided to make, to make the call. And all that stuff about the eight versus the nine and the queen eight being a less frequent um, three bet than the nine, was that stuff that you learned with your training with the Carnegie Mellon team and the solvers there? Well, I actually didn't do any work with the Carnegie Mellon team. Uh, I'm... I, I more got to face the work against me, which is a little bit different. I actually worked with uh, Primordial AA, Brian Pellegrino, and his team of guys, uh, as well as a couple of Scandi players that I was coached by, FrabXD and, and Button Clicker were the guys I got to work with most specifically. And then also, you know, when I say the reasons why we're doing things, what I'm doing is I'm taking solver outputs and I'm trying to apply some human-y kind of logic to it. So it's totally possible that this eight versus nine kicker conversation isn't that relevant and there are other factors at play but basically when you get these outputs you you take them and, and you try and create some you know logic behind them that you can apply in other situations to help you understand what to do by creating your own sort of whys based on the answers it's funny when you, you get a situation you say okay here's my question oh here's the answer but there's no reason why it's just this, this is the question uh -huh. this is the answer so we have to kind of make some of that stuff up ourselves and does that help you remember i listened to um, a few podcasts with you and one of them you were talking about how you had to memorize all these different sizings on the flop based on the texture you, and you were doing a single size just verbalizing it and writing things down helped you remember all that for pre-flop we were allowed to have charts up so i could have a chart with this on it but frankly, I kind of prepared thinking we would not have preflop charts for at least a bit. There was some argument about that, and it was at least shortly, for a short period of time, deemed to be something we weren't going to use. So I spent a lot of time memorizing this stuff, and then we ended up allowing it anyway. So, you know, this is something that I kind of learned on my own, and then also was allowed the resources to be able to uh, do it in real time. For some of the flop single size stuff, you know, you look at the game tree, there, there are tons of flops i don't know exactly i think 1700 flops uh that are unique in terms of their properties so for example jack nine eight two tone where the rank of the cards are different suits so for example uh you know jack nine eight with the jack and the nine being the suit versus the nine and the eight being the suit i think that i think the term is isomorphic if i remember correctly but anyway basically there's there's so many flops right and every flop given a button open and a big blind defend or whatever happens pre-flop if you can only play one size where you're only allowed to bet one size on the flop, there is an optimal solution for what that size would be. So what I did was I uh, had all the different boards run for what is the optimal size given some general ideas so or ge general some specific bet sizes. So I might say, okay, this is a flop. Let's see if 25, 40, 50, 67, 82, 100, 125, let's see which size creates the most value if you were only able to play with a single size. And I ran that for every flop uh, in both single raise pot, three pot, and four bet pot. Then you have a solution there, right? But it's every board, so you can actually apply in real time. So I created a uh, guideline. 
this is actually something that I did myself. I took the results from that and I created a bucketed strategy of boards that most closely resembled sort of the outputs that I was given. So for example, one thing that I found was on boards where there was no deuce through six, ace king high boards, no deuce to six, no straight. It really liked the overbet size. And I think people might've seen that for some of the challenge. If you watched, I used a 125% pot on boards such as ace king seven, uh, I would use that bigger size. And so sometimes it would be a little bit off, right? It's possible that on ace king six, it actually likes that size too. But the way that I bucketed it into a strategy that I could actually implement was, okay, no deuce to six, we're using this size if it's an ace or king high board. And I just went through and I uh, essentially did this for all the different boards to create my optimal flop single size uh, solutions. And then by creating this spreadsheet, did you feel like you just had it memorized because you put so much work in creating it? Well, uh, the spreadsheet is just, you know, it's not really something that you could execute in real time anyway. I think also using a lookup table to, to see a board and what size you're supposed to use there is getting pretty close to RTA. So I think that those two things sort of go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. I just created a more simplified version of this and you learn from writing it down, but you also learn from just playing it a lot uh, and going through the hands and seeing it over and over and over again. In three bet pots, I had uh, to take a little more time to think about what size I wanted to use and make some notes on on what kinds of boards I want to implement different strategies, which again, totally allowed. But uh, in single race pots, you know, you put 25,000 hands in a challenge, you're going to know your size on the flop. I, I think towards the end, I, I just, you know, I would instantly know, right? It's something that comes with time. That makes a lot of sense. I just think it's really interesting that you did it yourself, because obviously you could hire somebody to do it for you. But it reminds me of like, if you're studying a chess opening and you hire somebody to send you uh, a book in chess space, it's not going to be as powerful as doing it yourself in terms of memory. Um, speaking of which, how would you rank your memory on a scale from one to 10 among the general population first? That's a nice low bar. So I mean, compared to the general population, I guess it would be pretty good. I've always had a, a knack for having a very good memory at things I care about and a really bad one for things that I don't. So I would say I, I have an eight or so memory. I would say it's, it, it's good, but I wouldn't say I have an extremely sharp memory or I definitely don't have a photographic memory or anything like that. So eight against the general population and then among strategy game professionals, you think it's more or less average then? Yeah, probably something obscenity. Huh. Okay. Well, anyway, let's get to the flop. So 10-8 suited, Daniel opened the button and you called with queen eight offsuit and the flop was jack nine five rainbow. And you checked and Daniel um, c-bet 800 into 2k. So now we're on the flop here facing a c-bet and we have a gut shot. If you look at solver solutions for the way that straight draws play, this goes for flush draws as well, or basically any draw, you're going to want a mix of call and raise. And the amount of calling and raising that you're going to do is going to be in proportion to sort of the amount of value combos that you can realistically have on these boards, as well as what sort of range uh, asymmetries do you have in terms of the button's value range versus yours. Jack-9-5 is interesting because you do have a lot of two pairs. You're going to have most of your Jack-9 pre-flop, but you're only going to have 9-5 suited, Jack-5 suited in terms of your offsuit combos versus the 2.5x. So while you can have a good amount of value, you don't have any of the sets other than um, some frequency of fives. Uh, I think on this 200 big wine stack, that we're going to have fives about 50% of the time. Uh, we're not going to have nines ever. We're not going to have Jacks ever. We're not going to have Jack-5 offsuit ever. We're not going to have 9-5 offsuit ever. And it's also a rainbow board, which is something you kind of have to consider. Rainbow boards will chop down on suited combos in terms of your value, because if the nine of spades, five of hearts is out there, well, well there's only two combos of nine, five suited, um, instead of if it is nine of spades, five of spades, where you can have three. So there's some card removal at play. There's, there's a lot of hands here that I think you won't have as often as you may think. 
but there is a ton of draws on this board. Obviously, we don't have any flush draws, but just to, just to go through all of these straight draws that we can have, uh, we're probably pure three, but in king-queen, this step, maybe super low-frequency king-queen, but king-10, queen-10, queen-8, 10 8 10-7, 8-7, 8-6, 7-6. You have all of these hands, and, and even more specifically, you have all of the offsuit variants of these hands as well. So we're looking at, you may have 100, 150 combos of straight draws on this board, so you have a ton of draws, and you don't have a, a, a very, very high number of value hands. You're going to be able to check raise some jack x hands for value too, but your, your strongest value hands, you're a bit short on. And then you also sort of take into account the fact that you're over 200 blinds deep here. Uh, you're going to want to be a little more careful with your check racing with straight draws than you might be inclined to otherwise. A good rule of thumb on boards like this, where you have a lot of straight draws, is you're going to want to be check raising your straight draws in proportion to the amount of straight draws that you have. So let's say that a board is jack eight deuce. There, you're going to want to check raise your straight draws much more often than jack nine five, because on jack eight deuce, you don't have as many straight draws to choose from. Sure, you're going to have ten, you know, a, a good number of gut shots, but you have one open ender, and you're not going to have nearly the number of straight draws that you have on a board like this. So where does that put us with queen eight? Uh, it's our strongest gut shot, basically. So we're going to want to be checking raising this on the upper end of our of our check raise uh, frequency in terms of which draws we're going to use. It also draws uh, to the second nuts, which uh, is, is somewhat important as you get deeper. But realistically, it's not going to have too large of an impact on your overall strategy. I think realistically with queen eight, I think you're going to want to be check raising somewhere in the 20-ish percent frequency here on the flop. Uh, I, I did run this hand back in the day. I don't remember the flop check raise output, but it's going to be something in there. But your main line will be check call because you're going to have so many straight draws. You're going to want to use most of them to sort of fill out this check raise range, maybe the bottom of the of the, of the range to 6-7 where you're drawing to the low end of uh, two different straights. Maybe a hand like that can just not raise and maybe even work in some folds, although I'm not sure that's totally possible versus a 40% flop seabed size. But kind of looking at this bird's eye view, you're going to have to continue. You're definitely getting the equity to continue versus a flop seabed range for 40% pot. You're going to mainly be check calling and you're going to allocate for a small amount of check raise. And when you play the hand, did you use about a 20% randomizer or something along those lines? I'm sure I did. When I look back on a hand, I can see what number I didn't raise on. So it doesn't tell me my exact thought process of this exact frequency on the flop. And especially when you have to do this hundreds of times in a session, it's hard to remember my pinpoint, what was my flop check raise frequency. But I think it's safe to say I was in the 10 to 25% flop check raise range. So low numbers raise or high numbers raise? I'm in the low numbers raise camp. I I know this is a hotly (laughs) contested uh, subject matter, but... You know, there's two camps. There's the low number camp, and then there are people who are wrong. So I wanted to be in the in the first group. Aggressive style, for sure. So the the turn brought the the seven for the full rainbow, right? At this point, tell us what happened in the hand. So at this point, I checked once again. You could debate small frequency leads in these spots. I've always been a supporter of uh, going for a strategy you can actually you can actually pull off well versus something that might be a little bit more technically accurate that comes at the cost of a lot of complexity. You don't give up much by having no leads here, but you do give a lot up by leading incorrectly here. So I didn't really work in turn leads outside of board pairs into my strategy. It didn't seem reasonable for the sake for the sake of time and, and preparation. So anyway, I check. I'm pure checking here. Uh, now over to Daniel. He decides to go ahead and bet pot. This is a weird spot. What's weird about it is if you look at the solver outputs, they don't like pot in spots like this. They like let me give you an example. Let's say that the board is Jack nine, five, six, that board likes pot where it's just one single straight. In those situations, I think that the solver likes pot because 
in position and out, out of position can both have the straight, right? So that, that class of hands is relatively neutral. But if we go down a notch and we look who has the sets, it's very much in favor of the in position player. So by using a 100% pot bet here on a board, on turn such as a six, mm-hmm. you take advantage of this advantage in your range versus your opponents, which lets you bet this big size and still be able to value bet sets very aggressively. But what seems to happen as straight straight cards get into the mix, you start to see the solver prefers bet sizes more in the 50 to 67% range. This most directly happens on cards that are extremely middling that make three straights. For example, if this turn was an eight, uh, I would almost guarantee you it would prefer a 50, 58, 67% size bet versus a pot size wager. Another thing happens here where let's say this turns a deuce and we check. Uh, quite often the solver will like very large sizes, something like 125, 150, 175. Those sizes start to become more more standard here. And, and the logic is that out of position player is going to have already allocated part of his value range to check raise, whereas in position has not done that. They've just simply bet and been called. So the top por- portions of the range, in position has all of the sets and these two pairs, whereas out of position is going to sometimes be trapping those holdings. Of course, hands like top and bottom do usually prefer check call over check raise in a lot of these situations. At the same time, they are still check raising a lot of their value, and what's left in their range to check call isn't going to be adequate enough to deal with some of these larger sizes. And so in position, you use this bigger size to be able to build pot a pot that is larger with your value hands than, of course, being able to bluff at a greater equilibrium uh, ratio. So where does that put us on the seven? On the seven, I think we're looking at a spot where you really prefer a 60, 58, sorry, 50, 50, 58, or 67% pot bet size. But Daniel does elect to go for a full pot size bet. Now, if you're playing multiple sizes, then this can be fine. And I've not done a lot of in-depth look as to the way that we're supposed to split it using multiple sizes. Uh, for the sake of my puny human mind, I go with something like I can execute well and balance. So when I look at this, I'm not trying to make assumptions about what I think Daniel is or isn't doing. I'm not making assumptions that he is strong or weak. I'm just uh, making the assumption that he's choosing this bet size with a balanced range. Because I have so many other things to think about. I don't think that it is necessary for me to spend a lot of time thinking about what he's doing. I'm purely noting that I don't think that this size is usually optimal on a board like this, except for maybe some small subset of hands. Okay, so he bets. Now we have queen eight. Very interesting spot. We have a double gut shot. Uh, a 10 gives us the second nuts. Uh, six gives us uh, one card to a straight. So we actually do have a fairly strong draw. It's the second strongest draw here other than, uh, maybe the third strongest draw here other than king 10 or queen 10. Uh, those would be, of course, uh, drawing to the nuts on one side, so they're a bit better. Uh, but the point remains, we have a very strong draw here, all things considered, particularly on a rainbow board. Your straight draws are going to be uh, a slightly higher class of value compared to on flush draw boards because there aren't these tainted river outs that are going to make your life a lot more difficult. So the question becomes, how do we play versus a pot size so C-bet? Now, there's a bit of two different camps here in the heads of the limit community. There are people that don't raise here. And the logic is this. You don't give up a lot by not having check raises here. You protect your range. You're going to make sure you have these very strong hands in there. Uh, and you make it so that if your opponent wants to use very large river overbet sizes, you're going to have a lot of hands to battle against that profitably. The downside, of course, is that it is just simply more optimal to have raises here. And then also, if you don't have raises here, it's not going to let you bluff with hands like Queen 8 or Queen 10. So... My strategy in this spot was to play a polarized strategy of check raises. The way it's going to function in a spot like this, when you have 10-8 or 8-6, the straights, you're going to want to be check raising roughly half the time or so, maybe more like 60%. 
you still do check call them so that if your opponent wants to use river overbets, your range is balanced. But then you're able to sort of craft together bluffs outside of these value value bets to balance your range. The way the situation is going to play is we're going to check raise very large on the turn, and then we're going to include bluffs. These hands I mentioned before, king, queen, if we would be fighting that preflop, king, 10, queen, 10, queen, 8. These are going to be the, the best kinds of bluffs here. You could also maybe make the argument to use a few paired hands could be okay. I think maybe a hand like 8-5 might make a lot of sense here where you do block both straights, 10-8 and 8-6 are both blocked. Of course, you have a bunch of equity and then you also block some of the strong two-pair plus type hands. But I'm actually not totally sold that we even want to block two-pair in sets here because the size that we're going to use is so big that I kind of want you to have pairs by the time I jam the river. Even if you have a set, you know, if I check raise this turn, we are... 220 blinds deep if i check raise this turn big and jam the river your set is not good against my value range i'm saying i have a straight i have 10 8 i have 8 6 or i'm bluffing so do i want to block pairs probably not i probably would actually prefer you to have a pair or or essentially have one of your two cards be paired those hands are going to be not as strong as the types of hands that i would really prefer to block so when i'm looking at my turn check raise range here there's two strategies you can use in turn check raise. You can use either a geometric size, where essentially we're going to check raise to a size that allows us to jam the river for a roughly equivalent size, or we can use a smaller size that's a little bit less polarized. It gives us a chance to check raise with some two pairs and sets that we couldn't have used otherwise. Typically in these spots, the solver prefers geometric. I actually ran this hand and it saw pretty equal value between either one of those strategies. So you could use a two-thirds pot check raise size here too, or the size that I use. And they're they're both actually almost identical values. So you kind of get to pick your pick your poison and what you'd like. But I think what I like about the geometric here is I think it's a bit easier to play. When I check raise, I know I'm very polar and I know I have a very good idea of how I'm going to play the river and I know I'm going to be barreling the river at a high frequency. Whereas when you use the two-thirds size, you're going to have to check raise with some different hands you wouldn't otherwise. You're going to have to check raise more different hands that you wouldn't otherwise. And you're going to have to weave together a more complex river strategy and also look to defend your checks more. Like a jack seven, are you saying? If you have the smaller yeah, size, you'd put that, for sure. throw that in there? Jack seven. Uh, I think any of the two pairs for the smaller size other than maybe the worst couple uh, would, be, would be reasonable candidates. Sets. Uh, it's possible sometimes I see uh, some hands like Jack 10 get in there for this size. I'm not for that size. I'm not sure if that would happen here exactly because I didn't check for it, but I've seen that from time to time. Usually it's better to block flop value than turn value. So uh, pairs playing around the Jack 9 to 5 are, are usually stronger check race candidates than, than uh, cards playing around the 7. You think about hands like Jack 7, 9, 7, 7, 5. Those are all hands that would consider pretty reasonable flop check frequencies, whereas uh, jack nine, jack five, nine, five are all pure bets. So usually you want more playability in terms of blocking pairs that block that flop value range versus the turn value range. So you're saying that when you bet the bigger size, you you always have um, straights or bluffs. You never have the two pair combos, jack seven at that point, jack nine. I think very rarely. Maybe it allocates a very small mod, jack nine, jack seven, to give you some boats on some of these runouts. But no, you're, you're, you're really saying I have a straight or not. I, I think, uh, you, I mean, he bet... 3.6 and 3.6, and I made it 20.7. This is a very large raise. This is a serious business raise. This is a, hey, I have a straight, so if you don't have a straight, you should probably consider things kind of bet, you know? This is not something that he, if he's got kings here, he just has to fold. Uh, or at least, I'm pretty sure kings is going to just pure fold the turn here versus the size, because he's just dead versus my value. And then my bluffs have a bunch of equity against him. And then if he has kings or queens, he just blocks my bluffs. So this is a size where 
he's going to have to continue with mainly two bear plus some jacks. And then of course his straight draws as well. King 10, queen 10, definitely maybe some queen eight. Yeah. Maybe some Jack 10, Jack eight would get in there for the continue range. Well, Jack eight probably for sure. So this is, this is a spot where you're going to make him fold a lot of his value and you're going to really define his range as well as yours. And then we're going to, we're, we're kind of setting up to play this river in a way that's going to be balanced. I love what you said about the sizing from Daniel's point of view, because I think it can be really helpful for people trying to dis- to understand bet sizing that when his range is more saturated with great hands like sets and over pairs because there are fewer straights in the board, then it makes sense to um, go for a bigger sizing. But here that seven gave you a larger amount of straights, which kind of puts your ranges closer together with the nut and hands. So um, really great breakdown, Doug. And then uh, when you did check raise uh, to that larger size, it was 3,600 and you made it 21K. I'm, I'm using slightly rounded numbers. I hope that's okay with you guys. Um, I'll put a link to the actual amounts um, in the show notes. So he called and then the river came in absolute blank, uh, a deuce. So at this point, we're looking at a spot where out of position is going to barrel high frequency. When players check out of position here, they're supposed to be weak. There's a bit of a misconception in some of these spots that you have to tra- you have to balance in your checks in situations on the river like this one where you don't want to be you, you don't want it to be when you check you're always folding but in this spot exactly when you check you you should mainly be folding and if you look at solver outputs they're mainly going to check fold when they do check here you will occasionally work in some traps but it's fine to check fold here what would be exploitable what would be an exploitable frequency versus bluffs because I'm mainly betting. I don't know if my bet frequency in this river is 75 or 70, but it's going to be quite high. When I check raise and check, it's going to be mainly the bluffs that I check raised that now have bad removal against the, the call range. So we have to think what hands, so I'm mainly going to barrel this river. So when I have the, when I have the straights, I'm going to, I'm going to blast off and just jam the river. 10-8, obviously the nuts can do that. 8-6, you only lose 10-8. You, you obviously block 10-8 as well. It's definitely good enough to value jam the river. So we have two different straights that can certainly play for all of it here. So the question now becomes, what bluffs do we like? What bluffs do we not like? And so we kind of have to think about which cards are good. We'll, we'll just do a card-by-card breakdown. So I don't want to have a pair. I want him to have sets and two pairs because those will have bad removal versus my value range. I don't want to have a king that's only going to be really in hands that fold river. It's basically king 10 or king queen. Uh, maybe king jack should should not be calling river or calling turn much at all versus the size. So I don't want a king. I don't really want a queen because I block queen 10, king queen, queen eight. So queen's a bad card. Uh, a 10 is a neutral-ish card. You block 10, eight, but you also block king 10, queen 10. So 10 is probably slightly bad. An eight is the money card because you block 10, eight and you block eight, six. And there's not a lot of eight X hands that would bet call turn, you know, maybe queen eight, maybe Jack eight, but Jack eight is supposed to check the turn quite often and also check the flop some. And then queen eight, that, that could reasonably just fold the turn versus check raise. And and I think even should be folding the turn versus check raise a lot of the time facing a, a bet this large. So not many eights in the, in the hands that will fold, but 10, eight and eight, six are all are both always calling and he has a lot of those combos so uh the eight is the absolute best possible card to have here and then a six is uh, i would say probably slightly good because i wouldn't expect uh, a six to be in the uh call turn fold river range that often i would think when he has a six here it's primarily just going to be eight six so an eight is the best possible card a six is slightly good a 10 is medium ish uh, maybe slightly bad uh, a queen's bad a king's uh, and a king is bad as well 
But now we have to think about what are all of our bluff hands that we can have here, right? Because obviously, oh, wow, it's great to have it. Let's have pocket aids. Well, you're not check raising pocket aids in the turn, and you're not even finding that pre-flop. So we can't just pick the hands that are really awesome to have here. Let's think about our main bluff hands. We got king 10, we've got queen 10, and we've got queen 8. That's kind of it. Those are the main hands we're buffing the turn with. Those hands have really good equity against the call range. They're drawing to very strong hands. And outside of that, we don't have many bluff candidates, really. Of those, queen eight is by far and away your best bluff candidate because it has an eight. Yes, the queen sucks. You're not happy to have the queen, but it's not a pair. And you do have the eight, which is we've, we've established as the best possible card here. So I want to say I mainly jammed this river, or maybe it was 50 to 75% or so. I forget the exact frequency I went for, but uh, I ended up mainly jamming this river with my hand. So you mainly, you ran the randomizer and you jammed the river and Daniel snapped because he did have 10-8 suited. Yeah. And when you have 10-8, it's a great, great spot to be in. You know, Daniel played every street fine here, every one of these decisions he made is fine and, and i think on the turn when you face this large check raise a mistake weaker players will make is they'll re-raise here because they don't want scared cards to come if you look at the way the solver plays versus check raise it never re-raises it doesn't make it, it just doesn't make sense to raise the turn on the turn i'm saying hey i've got a straight or nothing why would you re-raise it's the nuts or nothing you know if you re-raise you're saying oh yeah well i have the straight well, now I fold my bluffs and I continue with my straights. So it, it doesn't it doesn't actually work out for you to, to try and raise the turn. And the solver confirms that. I ran this hand afterwards. The solver just absolutely loved this play. It was the bluff candidate. The bluff hand you use in this spot is queen eight. It's just not even close. Nothing else. Uh, the other hands either check, raise, check, or they don't check, raise the turn. The bluff hand, the solver, two zero is queen eight. It felt really great to, to run this hand because I ran it. And it says, okay, you have 10-8, you have 8-6, and you have queen-8. And, and you see that, yes, I lost the largest hand pot of the challenge for $187,000. But knowing that I made the perfect play here with really the, the ideal bluff candidate, it, it's great knowing that and, and knowing that in the moment I was able to use all of this logic to get down to the exact right combo, of, or maybe not exact right combo because suits aren't that important, but the exact right holding. It, it's cool to see that practice pay off in real time. Yeah, that must have been a great feeling. I mean, losing the 180,000. <laughs> yeah. So awesome. Yeah. No, but the queen eight, um, did the solver also like check raising it in the turn? What were their frequencies like there? Yeah, solver solver loved check raising turn with queen eight. It, it did it something in the vicinity of, I forgot what, what my turn frequency was here, uh, but basically the solver played razor fold on the turn. So it would either fold queen eight here or, or it would check raise it. And uh it was check raising at a, a good portion. I forget if it was 25 or 50 or what the exact number was, but it liked the turn check raise. I, I'm sure I was in that vicinity in terms of what I picked. And then it, it loved the river jam. It, it was probably even banging the river even more than I did. It was almost pure doing it from the sim that I ran. So yeah, it, it loved this hand. And, and that's the thing, you know, to talk about something that I'm sure this podcast talks about a lot, which is luck, probably not. But anyway, uh, spots like this, it's a weird way of thinking about luck because you might think, oh, was this hand a cooler? This hand was a cooler. This was a hand that was supposed to bluff, a mandatory bluff candidate if you're a good poker player, and you ran into the nuts. So this is maybe not your standard definition of cooler, right? This isn't aces versus kings. But when good players play, sometimes there are coolers that don't look like the traditional cooler in the sense of one guy had a really strong hand, one guy had the second best hand, but rather someone had the nuts and someone had a hand they had to bluff that's that's still a scenario that 
you know, you're supposed to lose over two buy-ins. And so this was just a real cold deck, if you ask me. The first bad beat story on the grid by none other than Doug Falk. You ran so bad. So bad. So unlucky. But seriously, when you played this hand and you lost $187,000 pot, you know, seriously impacting your lead in the match because you were up around 600, 700,000 at the time. I know you don't care viscerally about luck, but did it make you doubt yourself at all? Were you still, because you hadn't run the solve yet. Were you like confident that this was a right play or were you like, I don't know? This one, I was just completely confident. I knew I knew I was right. Some hands you play and at the end you think, oh man, uh, that, that one is... That was some questionable stuff. And I, I played a few hands along the way for sure, where afterwards I, I didn't know when I ran it and I was wrong. But this one, I've just, I've studied this spot enough to where I knew this was right. So I, I get stacked, you know, whatever. I'm playing the best poker I can. I know I'm playing well, running to the nuts. That's life. No, this this one I, I felt very confident in. But you didn't realize how right you were. You knew you were like kind of right. But then when you ran the solve, you were like, wow, I was like really right. But I knew I was right here, <laughs> you know? These spots, I think, are kind of easy uh, in that if I'm using the geometric size and I'm playing this, I have a straight or nothing. I think that if you use the logic that I applied in the turn, you can pretty accurately in real time implement a, a good balance strategy. Just because there's not that many combos. Yeah, you're saying I have the nuts. So you do it with the nuts. You do it with the second nuts. Uh, and then you pick bluffs that have the best equity against the continue range and removal. And then on the river you, of your bluffs, you pick your best removal. It's not rocket science on this one. About four years ago, you wrote, um, where you created a heads up course for upswing about heads up. I watched it. I really enjoyed it. Um, for those who haven't seen it, you create a very logical and comforting system, which did not use solvers, but used a lot of math around counting combos and creating trees to make sure you're balancing across different betting lines. And I really liked the post slop stuff. It was just really fun. And I wondered, like, it just seemed like something you were proud of and you were really excited to do it. Was it upsetting to you that it kind of became outdated quickly because of the advent of solvers? It's a little upsetting, but you also know it's going to happen. When you when you make a strategy course in games where a strategy is constantly evolving and, and tools are updating, you're always going to have these you know moments where you taught something that at the time you thought was right. You knew it was the best solution you were going to get at the time. And then later... As stuff evolves, there are going to be more moder- modern solutions that you can use. I think that what that course is still very good at is giving people the framework to be good at poker. Even if the actual boards and hands aren't the same uh, or aren't the sizes aren't correct or the ranges aren't correct or whatever, whatever the actual technical specifics aren't correct now that we have better ideas of what these things are, still the ideas of playing different parts of the game tree and balancing and, and setting yourself up to be balanced and, and understanding the way that these hands play on different streets, understanding how to allocate certain parts of your range to different things and, and thinking about, am I folding too much here? Am I calling too much here? Am I bluffing too much here? I think all of those things still have a lot of value. And, and, I, and I do think that, yeah, the technical stuff is starting to become outdated. The thought process isn't because those same skills, that same skill set of how to think about poker is absolutely applicable in today's game. I totally agree. And I think it is kind of funny that you go from that, you know, notepad. You use notepad a lot in that series. I still do. I still use notepad. What do you use notepad for now? If I want to take a note or I'm working on some size stuff or I start to change my strategy on certain textures, then I'll just make a note on it. And then, you know, I I have that if I I want to see what my research showed me. 
because sometimes you're just going through sims and and you see oh it likes this size here right you know and then and then before you know it you're using different sizes and you know it's good to good to keep tabs on that stuff sometimes just writing it down and reading it again you can start to actually internalize information that you don't get the first time through and there's also effective learning is really important and diminishing returns on study if you start studying and you study for an hour really in depth you're very focused and you and you're learning you're going to start to decline in what you retain over the course of that study. So sometimes, especially as sessions go on, just writing down notes that you can look back on the next day and, and remember and, and, and internalize will help you absorb that information quicker for the long run. Was there anything in this challenge where you felt like you were going down a rabbit hole and it wasn't very efficient? All the time. <laughs> this, this would be common for me. When I would start a study session in the morning, I would run a sim from the hands from the night before, and then I'd start to play against a trainer where it deals out the hands and these are from sims that you already ran and then you play a hand and then i would just i'd be four hands in and then it would tell me you swing in the turn and i would think what and i would have to pull up the sim and it, you could pull it up and it would show you and then i'm thinking how is that and then i think well what about on the turn Wait, what about this size and then and then 30 minutes have gone by and now i'm looking at turn check raise in a similar spot that wasn't the same and, and it, you, you're wondering where it all went wrong you can get so deep in the weeds at times that it's hard for someone i think with my my personality where I'm all an all or nothing kind of guy. And when I see something that I don't understand, I get so into it. And then before I know it, I'm looking at something that's just, is this even going to affect my win rate? Maybe barely. Right. Uh, so, so yeah, there's, there's this, uh, this trade-off of how deep into the weeds do you want to go versus, and really understand something versus just trying to hit sort of uh, a more shallow level of understanding across many topics. And I think that is one of the differences that you see in players today. Some players will be really, really deep in their knowledge of particular spots. Other guys aren't, but maybe they don't have that sort of baseline, more shallow knowledge that's ap- applicable across the board. And so you, you kind of have the, yeah, well, if we get in this spot, I'm going to be way better than you, but maybe you're slightly better than me and all these others. And that's kind of uh, where I think we see a lot of the differences between uh, players in today's game. And going back to your course for a second, if you had to show that hand four years ago in that course, um, do you think you would have recommended a similar line to what you played? I think so, yeah. Maybe not the the same bet size. I think I might have used a more standard bet size than geometric, but yeah, I think so. Turn on river check raise, especially river check raise, I think it's pretty intuitive. So when you think about river check raising, let's just say you check call two bets and you face a bet in the river. You want to check raise with hands that unblock bluffs. So he's most likely to have hands that are bluffing and then also block the value. So your opponent is you know less likely to have the full houses or three of a kinds or straights or whatever it would be. So I think that that type of range construction is still quite good. You know, a lot of the stuff that I was doing back in the day ended up being quite good. It ended up being solver approved and balanced and, and, and the right strategy in a lot of situations. There were as many other spots it wasn't, but some of the stuff just directly carried over. Uh-huh. And uh, so that, ma- that made it a little bit easier to implement, right? When you've already been doing something in a certain way. And turn check raising was something that I was doing before too. That's not something that's brand new to my game, right? So I think I think this is one of the spots that would have been, I think maybe some of the flop turn river overbending in single raise pot uh, in position is some stuff that I definitely wasn't doing. And then I think some of the uh, three-bit pot check raise stuff that I implemented, I wasn't doing much at all back in the day. And, and I also think I, I didn't even do as good of a job there as I as I might have liked over the course of this challenge. But I think turn check raise out of position versus C-bet 
and and river and, and even in the delay lines i think i think all that stuff was very similar to what i was doing back in the day yeah and maybe that's why this uh the study session was so fruitful for you that you did have that background which already was some of the lines that you were playing were proved to be um correct by the solvers so just to go back in time a little bit doug I do read in several interviews with you or listen that you did play chess as a kid. So tell us about that. Yeah. So when I was growing up, uh, actually, one of my first memories with my dad is he taught me how to play chess when I was really, really young. I don't know if I was four or five or six, but very, very, very young. And he taught me all the pieces moved and then we'd play games. And what he would do is he would play without important pieces. So he wouldn't have his queen or his rooks or whatever. And then whenever I beat him, it was like I leveled up and now he'd play with, okay, now just no knight and a rook or no bishop. Or, and then slowly before you knew it, when I was eight or nine, I was, we were playing real full games. Uh, and I was actually competing in a lot of local stuff for kids in the San Diego area. Actually, what's really cool about, I think, the Southern California area is that there's a lot of a lot of chess being played there. And there's a very vibrant chess scene. You know, you can go to the coffee shop, well, maybe not during COVID, but you could go to the coffee shop and play people. And I remember sometimes my dad would take me to the coffee shop and I'd play versus like random older guys at the coffee shop just playing chess. And I was also in some chess clubs. Uh, I got some lessons from a very strong player back in the day. So you're playing chess six, seven. When did you realize or did you realize at that time that you might be like really, really good at strategy games and later a pro? Yeah. So when I was uh, when I was in second grade, third grade, something like that, they had this thing called Math Olympiad and you'd go and you'd compete in your local area Mm -hmm. Uh, and i'd skipped a grade and i played in the chess tournament and it was all kids in fifth and sixth grade and then me who was in third or fourth but skipped a grade and so i was way younger than everyone and i ended up getting second or third in that i think i think i actually got third i think i got eliminated somewhere down the line but i remember looking at all these older kids around me and thinking man i'm actually really good at this for my age considering all these kids are way older than me and I think, I think around then I started to realize that I, I had a real knack for strategy games. And that was sort of the basis that got me into it. From there, I ended up uh, playing in a lot of other uh, video game strategy games. Uh, StarCraft, I'm not sure if you've heard of that before, but StarCraft and WarCraft 3 and that kind of stuff. There was a disastrous moment, though. I moved from Southern California to Vegas. I show up in my middle school. I go to sign up for the chess club. And people are, what do you mean chess club? Nothing. Oh, really? Vegas is a barren wasteland for chess. Uh, at least for kids. I don't think as much anymore, but maybe at that time. How um, how old were you when you moved to Vegas? I think I was something around 11 or 12, somewhere in that range. Now you can play at the Las Vegas. Well, maybe not now because of COVID, but I feel like there's some, there's some good chess players in, in Las Vegas now. But there's not that built-in sort of community that I think that there that exists in Southern California from, from my experience. There isn't even longer, um, you know, deeply rooted chess culture. They're just also being more populous, dense cities. Um, a lot of scholastic chess starts booming. Yeah. You know, I ran into you a few years ago. I think it was the first time I actually met you in person at a Whole Foods in Las Vegas. We started talking and um, you were already feuding with Daniel Negreanu. <laughs> But somehow you asked me a couple questions about chess. So, and, you know, I knew Daniel likes to play chess, too. And I asked you, you know, maybe you guys should play a chess challenge. And, and you said to me, yeah, like that's something that would really happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, that I mean, to be fair, that didn't seem likely. <laughs> but, oh, man, a chess challenge. That would be really something. Yeah, that, that's, that was my question, actually. My next question. So. You versus Daniel Negreanu in chess, I mean, because he's playing a lot of chess lately. He's playing in this thing called the PogChamps on chess.com, really big event um, with like, you know, celebrity streamers and, and whatnot. 
he's getting lessons from Hikaru Nakamura. So how, how do you feel like a match like that? Do you, do you think that you would also be a favorite in a match like that? So I still play chess super casually on chess.com. I just have it on my phone. And whenever I get a few minutes, I just fire one up. But I am I am really bad now. And when I play, I can't even be bothered to, to stop sucking because it's so low on my priority list. It's just sort of a, you know, something I just do randomly for fun. So I, I'm not good. If I worked hard, I bet I, yeah, I could be all right at it. I, I'm sure I, I, it's possible. I wouldn't rule that one out. I, I like, you know what the thing is? I like chess. I think it's a, a very fun game. I like the level of strategic thought and the, the different types of thinking that are involved. You have more tactical type thinking. You have more, you know, macro strategic theme type thinking. There's more sort of which trying to weigh the value of, of long-term, you know, is it better to have certain advantages versus your opponent? I, I like all of that stuff. But when I was a kid, one thing that sort of turned me off chess and, and this, I, honestly, it's it sort of just, this is exactly the same case in poker. But it just starts to get so solved in pre-flop, you know, repertoire, and, and and you just have to know all of these different variations and certain traps that will look like reasonable moves that aren't, and all of these types of things that you sort of really need to play chess at a high level. You just need so much prep just to be just to be a strong chess player in today's world that. I'm not sure if that's really where I'd want to spend all my time. So we're, we're not going to see a million dollar Daniel Nuranu versus Doug Polk chess challenge. Oh my God. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know anymore. I, I can't, I, <laughs> probably not. You didn't say no. <laughs> I, I, I didn't say no. I, I'm not saying I, I wouldn't consider that. That would be, wow. That would really be something. Could you imagine? That would be something. It's interesting because I do think he plays a little bit more than you now. But yeah, I just like I'm really interested because you have such a structured way of studying, which I think is super useful for chess too. Um, maybe not quite as much because chess is so much also about visualization. I think that's where grown-ups sometimes get stuck in chess. But since you started as a kid, that's actually a huge advantage for you. Yeah. Because like the visualization you did back then when you were like five, six, seven, it's kind of like learning a language. It like helps you when you're in your 20s and 30s if you want to go back to it. Yeah, and just thinking this piece moves here, that moves there, this moves here, that, you know, and then what does this look like? And then trying to visualize that. Yeah, it is like learning a language. You're going to have that sort of baked in edge just from having had that experience and having played so many games. I played so much chess when I was a kid. It was my favorite thing to do. So I can't believe that chess gets to take another credit for a great success. <laughs> <laughs> I'm now in the chess group. That's right. It made you realize you were good at strategy games. Were you like in gifted programs in school or was like, you know, get, being good at strategy games your kind of clue that you were smart? <laughs> There's almost no way to answer this without sounding like a dick. <laughs> yeah, so I first I first knew I was smart. I'll tell you when. It hit me. I was in some of the gifted programs and stuff, but I, I never really excelled in school because I just wasn't into it. And I, I'm an all or nothing kind of person and school was just a nothing burger for me. I just couldn't I just couldn't care. I, I needed something that I, I cared about and enjoyed and wanted to learn. And that's that was chess early, and then Warcraft three later, and then it became poker. And uh, you know, I, I need something that I was so I was passionate about and wanted to learn about it. Uh, I think that was that was important for me. What was your worst subject in school? Well, let's see. I failed pre-calculus, so I know you're supposed to be good at math when you're a poker player. But there you have it. Math was usually stronger for me, but then once they started throwing in letters, it was just all bets were off. There was there was too much going on there. Science, science wasn't good. Math and science, it was interesting. Those were actually probably my worst two. Probably though, because I never did any homework or study. So those are hard ones just to bullshit. Whereas English, you know, there's always some interpretation. 
make sure the teacher likes you. You can you can fly under the radar, but you, you can't do that in, in chemistry. That's not one you're going to get to get to just fly by. What about um, your sense of humor? Because you're a content creator and you do a lot of comedy videos. Was that something that you had in your childhood as well? Or did that kind of develop later in life? Of course, we know I'm smart, but I am also funny. That's a great <laughs> point that you bring up. <laughs> that that one is uh, that one's a little bit different. You know, I, I spent so much of my life focused in on strategy and and critical thinking and strategic thought. The last few years have been sort of refreshing in being able to use that creative side. I was also really into music as a kid, and I've always felt that I'm I'm a somewhat creative person. But sort of getting to to channel into that has been it's been interesting getting to use the different side of your mind. You know, getting to use some of your other things that. Um, getting to think about new things and, and embrace that. So I wouldn't say that I had any background in, in any of that stuff. And frankly, I'm only as funny as I seem because the people I worked with, they're amazing. Jamie Kerstetter, Thomas Keeling, Mike Brady, all, all awesome, good people who they're definitely responsible for a lot of the content that was funny along the way. I, I, I was in there, though. I, I had some good jokes, too, but. Uh, I wouldn't have been nearly as funny without those people. So I definitely took a team effort there. Yes, Jamie sometimes sent me um, some lines that she she told you. So yes, Jamie is hilarious. Um, okay, so let's say you had to do a stand-up set this weekend and you, you didn't have access to Seriously Serious or, or Jamie Kurtzstetter. What would it be about? Oh, man, what would it be about? So we actually did, I did a stand-up set with Joe Ingram a year or two ago. We just said, let's go do it. And we just wrote, we just wrote sets. And then we met up, we, or we wrote, I don't know what it would be called. We wrote what we were going to say. And then we met up beforehand and we both did some practices. And then we just went and did it at, at an amateur stand-up mic night. That, that was actually a lot of fun. Although you also learn that the way you think they're going to sound in your head doesn't end up being the way that they come out. And so there's obviously going to be, I mean, you're going to be terrible. And actually, one thing that I really like about being terrible at things is I like how pure of a response that that is. You know, we live in a time where there's a lot of hand-holding and everyone wants to be, you know, feel good and everyone needs to support each other and, and everything. But when you suck at something, it is so pure. You suck. You're going to get owned. You know, you go up on stage, no one's going to laugh. You suck at chess, you're going you're gonna to lose. You suck at poker, you're going to lose. And there is this honesty of how direct that experience is that makes the journey of self-improvement so rewarding. And, and actually, it's one of the most rewarding things I found in life is being bad at something and then improving and seeing yourself improve and know that you're learning and improving and fixing things and becoming better. I really love getting to go in that journey. But I don't know what the stand-up set would be about. But who was worse, you or Joey? <laughs> who was worse? I, I would say I, I think Joey had better material than me, so I'm going to blame the material. He got more laughs. Yeah, Joey got more laughs, but yeah, he 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 had some some good jokes. I mean, Joey Joey's good in that environment. Joey's uh he's he's a social butterfly, you know. So what's something else that you're terrible at? Like you 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 mentioned the uh, you know obviously I think everybody's probably pretty bad at stand up comedy, even if you're funny. It, like you said, it's just like the delivery and the timing is so precise. It's not something you can just do. But is there something else that you feel like you're not good at at all that you kind of want to do more of now? We're balancing it out now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. Uh, what am I bad at? Let me think about this. What things am I bad? Well, I'm definitely bad at chess. I can tell you that right now. Even though you played when you were five, six, seven. But you haven't played me in the last five years. I am legitimately terrible. So wait, what's your chess.com rating? Like, is it over a thousand? Uh, I think I'm at the 1200 mark okay, or something like okay. that. All right. I was, I was pretty right. Ballpark yeah. that. I could knock her up a few pegs, jump up the ladder a little bit. I think that would actually be a great match. You versus Daniel and chess. I think he's probably, I think he's pretty similar. Like I'm not following that 
closely his chess.com rating, but I know it's getting higher, and I think it was like a thousand before. <laughs> hey, this could be a close match. Oh my god, the wheels are turning. Well, uh, I think we're not bad at. I I can't cook anything. I have no ability to cook whatsoever. If there were no takeout options and Caitlin wasn't here, I think I would probably just die. I would. I don't think I'd have any other choice at that point. But uh, those are those are some of my some of the things that I would say I'm worst at. I'm very unathletic, so I'm extremely slow. Anyone's gonna beat me in, in a race. I hope nothing. I hope it never comes down to I need to run for my life in a situation because I'm the I'm the guy getting eaten by the lion at the back of the pack for sure. Those are the ones that jumped out at me. You're probably worse at those things than chess. I feel like chess is it's relative to how good you are at poker, right? Another question I had is, you seem like an extrovert when you do interviews. You're very like smiley and excited. It seems to talk to people. But when I hear about, you know, you spending, you know, hundreds of hours alone, you know, studying and looking at solvers, that sounds like a very introverted activity. So which one would you say describes you more? I, I'm more of an extrovert. I, I feel I have two different sides that are that want different things and like different things. And in one way, I am introverted in that I do love to get deep into things and understand them and learn them and apply them. And I'm fine being by myself for very long periods of time. So I don't need social, I don't need social interaction. I don't need to go out and hang out with my friends. I don't need to go do stuff. I just don't. I'm fine on my own. But in group settings, I find myself, uh, I, I like to try and be the class clown and, and go for the joke. And, and uh, it is, you know, my personality to be very outgoing. So I'm not sure where that leaves me. I think sometimes I would really prefer just to be on my own. But when I am in groups, I find it weird to be quiet in a group setting. I don't know. It's hard to explain. Well, probably for a poker player, you're pretty extroverted. I feel like we have a lot of introverts in our game. Well, we have a lot of weirdos in our game, too. <laughs> so you won millions of dollars. I don't know the exact total because obviously there were side bets in this challenge. But it really seems like you're pretty like, you know, a lot of times you're posting, you're, you're on Twitter, you're studying something, you're trying to get in shape. Um, what's the point of having a lot of money? Like, what do you think is the main, you know, point of it for somebody who doesn't seem like they're super extravagant? Are you going to start a business one day? Like, what, what what's good about having a lot of money? Well, luckily, I already started a business called UpswingPoker.com. Head over and take your game to the next level. <laughs> Thank you. That was, that was very natural lead-in. I think that when you have money, what you're really offered is freedom. And it's the freedom to do things that you like. And in the last year, I've played video games a ton. I've played Counter-Strike at a pretty high level in the U.S., where ESCI Advanced is, you know, obviously nowhere near pro, and and I'm more of the strategic mind than the than the guy that's the sick aimer. But uh, you know, I I got passionate about it, and I got deep in the strategy in that game, and trying to figure it out, and trying to um, come with solutions to problems. And so I think when you when you're successful, what you really get is the freedom to pursue your passions, even if people think your passions are dumb. You still get to do it. You know, it's your own choice. It's your own life. I think, you know, life is short and you should get to do the things that you enjoy and are passionate about. And I think sometimes when people get become successful, they, they end up in this rat race of how can I make the most possible money? And don't get me wrong. I enjoy making money, you know, as much as the next person, but it's not everything to life. It's not all about making money and all about searching for the, the higher net worth and, and being more successful. I think there's a blend there where you want to be doing things that make money and you want to be trying to be successful in your life, but you also want to really find things that you're passionate about and enjoy doing. Really, the point of life is to find a purpose that fulfills you and brings you enjoyment. Is there anything right now that you would say most closely fits that for you? Not at the moment. It's more ruling things out <laughs> at the moment. I, I, I think I'm going to take some time off, time off after this and rest a bit and think about sort of where I want to head from here. And then 
and then make my next decision. And I'm sure that that thing will become apparent. And when it does, I'm not afraid to go all in. All right. Well, just like in this hand, Queen 8 offsuit. Thank you so much, Doug, Doug Polk, the winner of the High Stakes Heads Up Challenge against Daniel Negreanu. It's been great to have you on the grid and a really interesting hand. And meanwhile, of course, you can find Doug everywhere on Upswing Poker, Doug Polk Vids. And pretty soon you'll see him in that uh, high stakes chess match against Daniel Negreanu. Time will tell. <laughs> Thanks, Doug. Thanks for listening to ThePokerGrid.com. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax-deductible donation to U.S. Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.